Oh, God damn that music every time. What's going on, guys? And welcome to a very energetic episode two of Burying Fake News. Top of the show, I'd like to give a big, big, big thank you to everybody who took their time out last week and downloaded episode one, and to all those who gave some feedback. Amazing. Really appreciate it. We've taken on board and we're learning as we're doing. For those who are new, however, this is Burying Fake News, the show dedicated to burying the bullshit, the ballyhoo news stories that shit up your social media. My name's Lewis, and I'm the soon-to-be Dr. G, and to join me as ever on this quest, you can hear her tittering away or from the sedentary position, the illustrious, the one, the only, la jefa, interpreter, showstopper, my carer, and often all-round good egg, the illustrious, Mariella, welcome to the show. Hi. Come on again? I gave you such a good build. Sorry. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in again. Did you leave your microphone on mute again? No, it's on. Mm. All this time we try and do a good show and you leave your microphone on mute and then sometimes we're sat down and I'm, I'm just trying to watch something and you're talking something I wish you'd have a mute. Oh, that's terrible. Today, we have a guest on from the NHS, a biomedical science uh, scientist. Today, we're also going to be talking about Judy Mokovitz. The interview was so, so enlightening. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as we enjoyed interviewing our guest. Uh, I thought it was all right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, it was really good. And, um, oh, goodness. Definitely got that to look forward to. Definitely got that to look forward to. It was good. And what I'll also say at the top of the show whilst we're doing this introduction is if you listen to podcasts regularly, if you are someone who hasn't just listened to it because I've done it, but you actually are a regular listener of other podcasts and there's someone that you like a lot or a group that you like a lot and they're an independent, they're not um, pushed by a company or corporation, please go and support them. If that means three quid a month on Patreon, if that means buying their merchandise, whoever it is and whatever they do, go and support them because I'll tell you now, it is not easy. Recording's easy, but to sit and talk to my missus, I, I do that convincingly most days. But to actually get it out edited, that takes so many hours. And then to go and get it onto a, a host and then generate the feeds to go and share it with everybody, it takes time. And it, it, it really does take a lot of money. And to do it free on a, on a low dime is tough. So if you do have independent podcasters that you listen to, I implore you, go and support them. It's re- made me really reevaluate my approach especially in, in britain in america you know that hyper capitalistic approach to everything it's more like yeah i just buy that shit yeah i go blah blah as brits we're not really that way inclined to part with our money and sometimes that's for the good because we're less likely to get ripped off i hope but it's also bad for those uh british kind of people who are really trying to get out there and get their podcasts out there so i do implore you go and support them yeah Liz was very surprised at how much effort goes into editing and actually you know putting out an episode so i agree so should we talk about judy judy mikovitz absolutely disgraced and discredited scientist disgraced and discredited dr judy who gives a shit you know i've got some deja vu have we just been speaking about her for 20 minutes i don't know (laughs) i think i feel it too (laughs) so this is someone who's been very key in arming the morons with knowledge that well, I use the term knowledge loosely, faux knowledge, if you like. This is someone who started their career in the 1980s with a BA degree from the University of Virginia. Following that, she actually worked at Upjohn Pharmaceuticals in Michigan from about 86 to 87. She was then basically fired for a dispute with the bovine 
uh, what we call BGH, bovine growth hormone, some product. So you know, you know, she's (laughs) straight off the bat, she's bloody useless. Um, Getting fired, she thought, what next? And then she went to um, do her PhD at the George Washington University, and she actually did a PhD in the negative regulation of HIV expression in monocytes, um, which I think personally is really cool because when she was doing her PhD... Right at the height of the pandemic too. Yeah, absolutely. HIV was huge in the mid-80s, and she's doing a PhD. And I think that's a really cool time. And I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, I'm envious, but I mean, that's quite a privileged position her to be in with her work with HIV and we'll come back to that later so then mid-2000s she she ends up meeting uh, Silverman not Dr Silverman from T2 but Robert Silverman of uh, XMRV research which is xenotropic neuron leukemia virus uh, related virus and Harvey Whittlenaw at the time huge was having a big paddy if you like about the lack of, an- of uh, answers for his wife Oh, yeah. Oh, God, it was was huge. They actually, her and um, Silverman got together. They got some positive data, and I use the the word positive in quotation marks because they published it in Science, I believe. Wow. Yeah, it was was groundbreaking. You know, it was blockbuster, as they say in Big Pharma. And then following (laughs) following that publication, it, the, the, the whole field was swamped with reports of negative data. Nobody could replicate what they had done. Oh, wow. No, Yeah. It was the same guy who said they'd achieved cold fusion in a test tube or whatever. No one could copy it. And and like the wow. guy who said we achieved cold fusion in a test tube, the Silverman gave the same answer kind of, well, oh, you won't be able to replicate our conditions. That's what he said initially. And then... No, yeah, but that's one of the fundamentals of science, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. Reproducibility. But I think eventually they said, oh, well, we had lab contamination despite our best efforts to avoid it. So what he was saying is we still saw this data. We didn't make it up, but it may have been from somewhere else. Oh. Lies. And lies. And this is before we even get into anti-vaxxer. Oh, gosh. Subsequently, yeah, following this, I mean, if you write a bit of bullshit in a paper that few people read and it's one of your yields isn't as good as the others or you get a higher percentage than you actually did and you you know postdocs will lie the pressure that they're put under and phds too the pressure that they're put under from their supervisors especially in america can be absolutely phenomenal in a publish or perish world and that's why i believe that this you have to publish to be have your job is bullshit Moving on from that, we can talk about that another day. That's kind of why this happens. And small lies can come or go, and we're kind of used to them in science to some degree, providing this whole story makes sense. They wrote the Bible here. Yeah, it sounds like scientific misconduct after scientific misconduct. If this person worked in my building, I'd have slapped them. I, I would have really kicked off. Absolutely. You know, we as scientists work so hard. Yeah, we as scientists, we pride ourselves on the truth personal truth historical truth fundamental truth scientific truth and that's the principles that drive science so fuck you and fuck your payday and you work so many years and you study for so many years on working on credibility right and for somebody to come along and all of a sudden really shatter that 
is is devastating. I will just say that science paper did go on to get retracted, as you can imagine. Well, thank goodness for that. But I guess the damage is still done, isn't it? Um, especially, you know, I guess out in society, it's much harder to um, understand that something all of a sudden is deemed not true or has shown insufficient evidence for it. So that's, you know, the downside to that. Disgusting for profit. And when she then later on, a couple of years later, came out as an anti-vaxxer, that was also money-driven. And we're going to do a whole episode on anti-vaxxers and where that stems from and why that's bullshit too. But we don't want to get off topic. We'll just say that she tried to purport it. Oh, gosh. Back when that was a thing to purport, right? Oh, gosh, indeed. Moving on from that to current day, we have COVID-19. And then she took part in a film which I think is now completely removed off the internet. It's not on YouTube and it's not on Vimeo. It's not on Facebook because it's just, well, it's egregious lies. And I don't want to give the title of what this film is called, but if you go and search, you know, Dr. Judy Who Gives a Shit and her movie, you'll, you'll find it. It's a half-hour documentary of deceit. Oh, wow. And I thought my classics were dramatic. Oh, I'm just getting started. You know what I do have? I'm not going to give the name of it away, but I do have some excerpts from the documentary. Do you want to hear what she actually said? Oh, please, let's hear it. Well, so the documentary opens with her saying that she was held in jail with no charges, and that's called being arrested. Anyone who's ever been arrested will know you can spend a night with a sheriff and, you know, that doesn't matter. <laughs> that's not going to prison without... that. That's jail. That's how the world works, dickhead. So the interview goes on to then ask her about being arrested and she sort of moans that she was held in jail with no charges, we've kind of just covered. Then Mikovic goes on to say that the Department of Health and Human Services, the HSS, HHS, colluded and destroyed her reputation with, I don't know, with working with the FBI and Anthony Fauci. Oh my gosh, the Anthony Fauci we see now? The same guy, believe it or not, is not only working to save lives, but also a mad FBI player, huge backballer in the Rockefeller Institute. <laughs> he might as well be the head of the Illuminati too. These are quotes, by the way. I'm not I'm not paraphrasing, but she goes on to say, Fauci, he, directed the cover-up, and in fact, everybody else was paid off and paid off big times millions and millions of dollars in funding from Tony Fauci, Anthony Fauci, and National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. These investigators that committed fraud continue to this day to be paid big time by the uh, National Institute of uh, Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Oh my goodness. So she's saying that it's okay for her to be paid millions to perpetuate lies about vaccines and autism and coronavirus. But when someone else does it, or sorry, when someone does it against her, it's clearly for money and nothing else. Well, it takes one to know one, right? Well, it goes back to that last, that, that tweet of the week last week where, we, where they said, you have to consider that, you know, I alone solved something that experts have never known mm-hmm. is less likely than experts know something I don't. If you are one person, even with your biochemistry PhD, and everyone around you is telling you you're wrong, 
right? Mm-hmm. Everybody. And this isn't like a paradigm shift of an idea. This is just you looking for money and using your degree for notoriety. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, you said earlier, you know, that she she's the one not just spewing this, but it kind of gives the people who spread this misinformation a bit more of a platform, right? It's they're, they're, They can say, there's a scientist who says there, and this is Dr. Judy, you know, and this is when it becomes harder to, or you get into more complex arguments about, you know, her work being discredited or evidence that has been shown that has showed the contrary and stuff like that. I think it's so much harder to just straight up say, you know what? No. She also goes on to say, quote, it started really when I was 25 years old. Is this tweets of the week? Are we doing this section already? Could be, right? It's it's play the music. She said, when I was 25 years old, I was part of the team that isolated HIV from saliva and blood of the patients from France. Um, where they originally isolated the virus. Fauci holds up the publication of the paper for several months. Basically, Fauci is the reason why it didn't get published. And um, Gallo writes his own paper, and this is another guy, and he takes all the credit, and there's patents involved. So basically, again, alluding to the fact that there was money and she got screwed out of money. And, And that the delay of confirmation literally, quote, literally led to the spreading the virus around, you know, killing millions. I will stress this. At the time of HIV's discovery, Mikovic was a fucking lab technician. She was not doing a PhD and she was not doing research. She was supporting a role somewhere else, independent, yet to receive her PhD. There's no evidence that she was part of the team that first isolated this. And in her first published paper where she co-authored it, it was two years after the science paper. The, 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 there was four landmark papers that were linked to HIV, then called uh, HTLV3 or whatever by Gallo's lab, three years after Gallo's lab. Wow. And then, and then, and then Rossetti's paper is the other person she talks about very briefly. That was actually um, in 85. There's no evidence that says that he held up that publication or led to the death of millions. That's just dramatic bullshit. By the way, mm-hmm. the interviewer then goes on to say, if we activate, I might just fucking fact check everything she says yeah the interviewer says if we activate mandatory vaccines globally i imagine these people stand to make hundreds of billions of dollars that own the vaccines which is what an interview would probably question right mm-hmm. but remember this interviewer also is also being paid by the same people who are paying this fucking idiot she said in reply to that question and they'll kill millions as they already have with their vaccines there's no vaccine currently on the schedule for any RNA virus that works. Oh my god! This is tweet. This this is tweet of the week, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> We're in the wrong exactly. segments, maybe. <laughs> so just to clarify, vaccines have not, nor never have, killed millions. They've saved millions of lives. Fuck. And there are many vaccines that work against RNA viruses. And I think you know this whole argument about money being a factor. Everybody knows big pharma doesn't do things for free. You know, the pharmaceutical sector is one of the most powerful, most, you know, uh, rich sectors there are worldwide. So I'm not surprised that, you know, there's money involved in, you know, these pharmaceutical companies wanting to make some, but that doesn't discredit the work, you know, that scientists have put into creating these vaccines or these treatments too. All right. Well, yes, maybe I overlooked that. Maybe, maybe I 
Forget my audience sometimes. Apologies. Yes, absolutely. But for me, the most egregious part of that, quote, there is no vaccine currently on schedule for any RNA virus that works. Yeah, that's a blatant lie, isn't it? Let me ask you something. How many people, how many people have died of measles, mumps, rubella, yellow fever, do you know? Rabies. How many people do you know yeah, with rabies? No, no. None. You know why? Because we have a vaccine that stops that. Absolutely. The interviewer then goes on to say, so I have to ask you, are you anti-vaccine? And then in one sentence, she says, no, yes, I am. She goes, oh, absolutely not. And vaccine is immune therapy. And, I, and, I, and I'm all about immune therapy. We just need, quote, an immediate moratorium. What the? Oh, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, in one tense, in one sentence, she's saying, no, I'm not anti-vaxxer. We need to stop all vaccines immediately. None of them work. I've just given you rabies, yellow fever, mumps, rubella. These are all examples of RNA viruses that are proven vaccines. So fuck you, Mikovits, and fuck anyone who looks like you, and fuck anyone who's on your side, idiot. And if you live in Michigan or wherever she resides, and you see her in Aldi, and you see her in the shops in Kroger or wherever else is you shop. Sweetie, North American shops, help me out. Target, where else? Come on. Uh, Target, a Macy's, and Nordstrom. If you see her in any of those, you just go and slap the piss out of her mouth. Don't say a word, just bang. I've hit people for a lot less, and they should be hit, and rightly so, because they are spouting dangerous, mistruths, unguided lies that give rise to the crap that we see online And in addition, day. I think she discredits everybody who has worked really hard and has given their lives, you know, work and um, time to... Very disrespectful. To, ...to doing all this, right? I mean, with one sentence, she's basically saying all of that work, the work that has been done for centuries, is worth nothing. Absolutely, absolutely. She also went on to say that... Um, <laughs> she basically tried to link an influenza... Uh, like what you'd have your seasonal flu vaccine. She tried to link the flu vaccine to a dog coronavirus oh yeah she, she she said something like you know basically one of the tweet of the weeks last time you know basically saying that we've seen a, an enhanced flu right that the the COVID-19 that we're seeing now is <laughs> yes, yes that's it yes uh, you know just from a, a flu vaccine that we you know put out I think 2013 2015 absolutely insane you know like there is no 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 evidence to to ever suggest this and you know to activate a flu from a vaccine is you know, at least that I know of, it, does, it doesn't work like that. And then just finally, this um, is what's really important here. One of the main kind of talking points from this bullshit article was that she said, and I'm going to quote here because I don't want to misrepresent her, quote, wearing the mask literally, oh, this is so tweet of the week. Wearing the mask literally activates your own virus. You're getting sick from your own reactivated coronavirus expressions. And if it happens to be SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, then you, you've got a big problem. So basically she's blaming people for infecting themselves. I, it's your fault you're sick. You wore a mask once, now look at you. I don't think it's clear what she means by ex coronavirus expressions. <laughs> and wearing a mask will not activate anything or make you ill. Maybe <laughs> she's kind of thinking along the lines of, you know, I'm... you've had a flu, you should change your toothbrush sort of thing. But <laughs> that's... <laughs> oh, I don't, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know what she means and I don't want to talk about it any longer. Fuck her. She's wrong. Anyone who says 5G causes corona or 
quotes Judy Mikovits on the fact, oh, she's got a PhD. She's a disgraced cretin. She took a payoff to lie. Nothing more, nothing less. She can't be trusted and she never will be trusted and she'll never have a publication to her name again. Fuck her and fuck anyone who looks like her and fuck anyone who's on her side. And if you're a scientist and you know this person, you live close to this person or they try and come to you for a job, you need to slap them down. And boy, howdy, should you slap them down for all the reasons we've just said. If you really believe in what you study, in what you spent so long of your life dedicating yourself to, to scientific truth, then you will do the world a favour and slap this person down and say, you've disqualified yourself, you can go and be Mother Teresa for all I fucking care, but you will never, ever take rightful place in science again. Absolutely, and she has officially been um, discredited as a scientist, and I'm sure science, uh, like the journal, has actually, you know, taken out articles fact-checking her and basically saying everything she says is a lie. So she has no standing as a scientist anymore. Should we talk to a real scientist? Jesus, should we get this out of the way and talk to a real scientist? Absolutely. How exciting. It'd be nice, refreshing after talking about Judy. Well, and with that piece of business wrapped up, we're going to move on to uh, our interview that we, we teased it last week, and here we are this week. You want to hear it? Here it is. Um, good friend of mine, known for a while. He works for the NHS, and he's a biomedical scientist, and he's going to come and answer a few of our questions that we have and just talk a little bit more about what's going on in the world, especially with him being on the front line. So, Lyndon, welcome to the show. You're right, Gooch. Good, good to be here. No, no, thank you for coming. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, no problem. Just for the fine folks who have taken their time to download and have got this far through the show, who are you a little bit and what do you do? So my name is Lyndon and I'm a biomedical scientist. So I'm registered with the Healthcare Professionals Council and that means I'm allowed to work in labs and hospitals and produce results that then doctors use to make their clinical decisions based upon the results we produce in the lab. So the lab, the lab that I work in is the blood sciences lab. So I deal with things sort of like full blood counts, coagulation, and I work in blood bank as well, so blood transfusions, then also biochemistry and immunology as well. That's so insane. Could I just ask him briefly, could you tell us a bit more about what you studied? So my degree is in biomedical science. So that covered sort of all aspects of what we do in the lab, mainly things like hematology, blood transfusion, biochemistry, genetics, uh, vir- virology, general microbiology, uh, histology, cytopathology. All the genes. Wow, that's so much. <laughs> yeah. So most, most of the stuff I don't, I don't really need to use day to day, apart from what I learned in hematology, transfusion, biochemistry and immunology. All the G's. You have to be yeah, qualified for all a... the G's. Lyndon the G. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah, there's a few <laughs> ways of getting into it. Let's say, like, some of my colleagues have got biochemistry degrees, and I think a couple of others have got, a, like, sort of human physiology degrees. Oh. But again, you will, you will have to go through that process of getting registered with the Healthcare Professionals Council. So for me, that's quite straightforward, having a biomedical science degree. But if you've got a different degree, say a biochemistry degree, there'll be other modules you'll have to do. So you'll have to do a little bit of study in your own time to then, before you can then go to them and say, ah, this is my qualifications, I know what I'm doing. And they'll say, yes, you do. And speaking of knowing what you're doing, that's exactly why you're here. So straight off the bat, how has your day-to-day life, particularly in, in work and what you see, how has that changed since lockdown or during lockdown rather? So the most strange thing that people are like, 
sort of surprise to hear to start with is initially for us in the blood sciences lab, the workload just plummeted. Like, oh, wow. Because people stopped, coming, people stopped coming to hospital. All the GPs closed. Hospitals were only admitting people who were desperately need to be there. Like then, then people are sort of generally being afraid. So staying away from A&E, not going to A&E unless they really, really need to be there. And obviously everything pre-planned for all the pre-planned procedures and that, that all just shut down to start with. So, but then after that, we sort of like some of the staff started getting a little, a little, a little bit sick. So we had a, like some of the staff would be off either self-isolating or, or ill. Then sort of later on into it, fairly early on, we had staff being redeployed. So like there's a few, a few of my colleagues have backgrounds in virology. So they went straight over to the virology lab. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let me just quickly um, roll back there to what you were saying is, so initially you had very little going on. And then when people started getting ill, so as people started getting ill um, and they went off self-isolating, um, what can you talk about what the protocol was if you are an NHS staff member and, and you're ill? What What is the procedure? Do you get a test or do you just presume you're, you've got it? Up until very recently, it was if you've got symptoms, you'd stay off work for seven days or until the symptoms are finished. Or if someone that you live with gets symptoms, you'd stay off work for 14 days. But then if you then develop symptoms, it'd be seven days from then. And that's what we've been operating on for the longest time now. So we've only just started getting staff who were able to get tested. So that, that was the process we're working under initially. But sort of to start with, things kept kept changing very fast, like all the procedures we had to follow. Because obviously no one knew what we were dealing with. No one knew exactly how contagious it could be, what the risks were to us in the lab. So there was a, a period of, sort of people going off people going off ill and like oh you know i was working with them yesterday what does that mean do i have to go off ill yeah absolutely and the uncertainty especially early on and in terms of your opinion is i'm going to roll back now to you know early january kind of period the numbers that were coming out of china that obviously we now know were wrong didn't indicate at least to my understanding that we could really have an issue here it was only when we realized how bad it it really was when the numbers started becoming legitimate. Would you say he was in the same boat? Were you following it that early at all? Like in January, we were aware of it. Like we'd heard some reports come out. I remember chatting with my colleagues in the tea room at work, thinking, "Oh, that you know, this sounds a bit, a bit interesting. What's going on there?" But I remember, like way back in January, so my girlfriend, she'd actually booked booked a holiday, and she was supposed to be going to China in April. And it was, I think it was a bit after, after January when it all, it all started kicking off. And she was like, oh, do you think I'll still be able to go on my holiday? And I was like, yeah, probably would have blown over by then. Like, I don't think it's going to be that big of an issue. I was like, April, you know, it's a few months away. It would have blown over by April, which obviously we know that was, oh, no. uh, it didn't turn out that way. But initially, yeah, we were hearing stuff coming out of China and it was, we're thinking, oh, you know, it's interesting, but it doesn't sound that bad. Yeah, I was guilty of that too. I just thought that it's these numbers just don't concern me, and now all of a sudden we've got, you know, so many people who sadly aren't with us who who should be. I found one article or blog post. I was reading it in the tea room at work, and it's like inside the Chinese hospital where bodies are piling up on the floor and patients are just dropping dead everywhere. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a load of bullshit. Like, you know, I was, I was like, that's not that doesn't correlate with what else we've been reading. So it probably that probably was a bit of an extreme picture of it. But I think that was the first, like, uh, like indicator that it could potentially be worse than, oh, just a few people have got sick. 
Um, I, I think, like, uh, at least in my case, what kind of made me think, like, oh, it shouldn't be too bad is that we've had like, similar experiences with, like, SARS and MERS, where we saw it emerge somewhere, and then we're like, ah, it's all right, you know, it, it was kind of a big deal for a little bit, and then it just kind of disappeared, and I guess people kind of thought it would be the same thing, Yeah, I'd say thing, I was kind right? of probably expecting something similar, because I, I do remember reading about MERS, and it, it, it was quite bad for a while, but it just sort of fizzled out, and... I mean, obviously it was terrible for the people it affected, but it, it stayed really small and localised. So in general now, how is the NHS holding up? How, how is it coping? Well, I'd say it's, I'd say, yeah, coping better than, than what it could have been or what some people expected. Like there were probably some things that could have been, could have been done better, some things that, that have been done okay. But again, from my perspective in the lab, it's it's been all right. So we, we did have some... Uh, yeah, we had F- FFP-free masks, which are the, those are the ones that seal against your face and that they actually do protect you from, from catching it, we think, anyway. But we, we, we had a box of those. We just, we just have it in the lab, and we used, that, we used that entire box in about a week, and then we still haven't had any more. So I, I think the mask we were, were supposed to oh, get, wow. they, went, they went to the wall. <laughs> I don't know how much your employer is going to want us to air of this. Yeah, so, but... <laughs> I think it's the thing. I think it's we're a low priority area at the minute because we what we have had delivered after it was probably a good four to six weeks for us to between getting it delivered and installed. We've got a big uh, microbiological safety cabinet now, so we're told as long as we do everything in that, then we should be completely fine. Like the hospital where I work was in quite a a good position in in that the trust was upgrading the ventilators, so we we'd had the new ventilators delivered. And they've been tested, and they, I think they were just—they just finished testing them and saying, "Yep, these ventilators are good. They work. We're ready to start using them." And they, and they were going to the old con, whoever the old contract was with, they were going to come and pick up the old ventilators and take them away. But somebody said, "No, nope, don't take them away," and that they wouldn't let the guy take them away. So then we ended up with twice as many ventilators as what what we should have had. So that that's worked out quite well. Not a bad thing. Yeah, I mean. Sorry, my um, my impression, especially as an outsider, you know, reading about the UK situation was that, you know, the UK was hit quite devastatingly so with all this, you know, the death toll is, is, is high compared to the rest of the world and what's still unfolding. But one of the main goals from your government appeared to be, you know, not overwhelming the NHS. And I think at least that goal was actually handled pretty well like it never seemed like there was ever a report like the ones that we saw coming out of Spain or Italy where hospitals you know were so overburdened with people that people were dying in the hallways or you know going home to die or something like that so I think at least the impression I got was that the NHS actually managed to hold like you know put up a fight and that's quite a a victory in itself. that's, That's definitely the case in the hospital I work in where it's been it's been handled quite well. I don't. I don't think we've ever, like, we've ever had any point where it's been we're getting overwhelmed. We can't handle it. Patients are going to die when they when they could they could be treated. So I don't think that situation's played out at all in the hospital I work in. I think that probably has been the case somewhere in, somewhere in London. Probably, like, there's probably been a couple of a couple of places mm-hmm. in London when they got hit quite badly, where they they probably did just about reach their maximum capacity. But again, things like opening up the Nightingale hospitals, and I think the key indicator there has been they've not really been utilised. Like the one in London stayed, stayed in its mm-hmm. first stage. They, I, mean, I think they could have scaled it up to 4,000 beds. But I think 
I don't think it ever got more than 500 beds off the top of my head. So that shows that, yeah, mm. the the NHS wasn't getting anywhere near anywhere near capacity. That's good. Though. That's what we want. Yeah, it's been it's been all right. It's I mean, it could have been better. It has been stressful at times, and there has been some learning to do and some adapting. But it's it's not been as bad as it could have been. Because there, there was a point where we thought, crap, this is going to get really bad, and it 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 didn't tur- it didn't turn out to be as bad as how it could have gone. So, in terms of treatment, then. What are your thoughts on the current treatment and the new treatments that are being explored? So I want to talk about one treatment that as uh, that I've had some sort of involvement in or some sort of knowledge of that I think a lot of people are probably not so much aware of, and that's the convalescent plasma therapy. Ooh. For, for, for the fine folk who don't have all the ology degrees, what, what does that mean? In, uh, so, <laughs> in so to, to break it down, so the word convalescent, that means it it comes from the term like recovery so like if you're convalescing that's the same as like recuperating and recovering so convalescent means mm-hmm. it's it means like recovering or recovered and then the plasma therapy comes from that being blood plasma so the idea is you take blood plasma from people who've recovered and then transfuse it into people who are who are critically ill in the hope that that could that could help them fight off the virus is this have to do with the antibody and the those treatments? Yes. So the the blood plasma that's the uh, that's the liquid that the red blood cells float in. So you've got red blood cells going around in your circulation, but the red blood cells they're floating in this liquid that we call plasma. So the plasma is it's water, but it has proteins, sugars, you know, vitamins, minerals, basically everything your body needs is all just dissolved in it. But some some of the protein that's dissolved in the plasma. That, that protein's antibodies so that's where the antibodies are so the idea is you take someone who's recovered from COVID-19 who has produced antibodies so they've mounted an immune response cleared the infection so they've got a certain level of antibodies in their system so you take some plasma from them and then transfuse that plasma into someone who's at, at this stage it'll be someone who's critically ill with COVID-19 and in the hope that the antibodies that they've received in that plasma can then help them deal with the the infection they've got so it wouldn't give them any active immunity it'd be what we call passive immunity so the antibodies they don't stick around in the system for all that long and we're not exactly sure at this point exactly how long they'd stick around but the hope is it'll be long enough for for them to make some sort of difference i'd have thought four weeks would be yes so at, at this point they're trying to collect it from people who have who are two weeks recovered because they don't want to leave it too long after they've recovered for antibody levels to drop but obviously, for each, yeah, for yeah, each yeah, person, yeah. it's it's going to be different levels for different people. Like, like say some some people could produce antibodies and have a level a hundred times higher than some other people. So at this stage, the NHS Blood and Transplant they're currently doing a a trial. So at this point, they're trying to rec- recruit donors and they're testing all these people and they're they're doing what's called antibody titrations. So that'll tell them how much of each antibody each person each person has in their plasma is that done with a massive piece of glassware drip one drop at a time <laughs> well that that is the original technique i'd imagine there's probably some sort of automated process now <laughs> so could i ask i mean has this been done before is there evidence that this works uh yes well this is a it's a technique that's been used going back many decades if not possibly about 100 years it's a treatment wow. that's that's not really used ever because usually it's it's much better to, to develop a drug 
or it's or you, so you can develop a drug or you can develop a vaccine those will be much more effective in the long term so developing a vaccine can potentially eradicate an illness or developing a drug to treat that can treat it it's much more easy to mass produce and it's much more like easy to control the effects you can control dosage you can produce like a standardized drug whereas the reason they're looking at the convalescent plasma now is because you can do it quickly like we already have the infrastructure for people to donate plasma and to transfuse plasma into patients we already do that for like patients who have got coagulation disorders so where their blood doesn't clot clot properly you you take plasma from someone who's who has healthy blood who their their blood clots properly and then that'll give them the the clotting proteins they need to make their blood clot properly it's a it's a similar process to that instead of for instead of the proteins they need for for coagulation it's the antibodies they need to fight the virus so like it it can, it can potentially be within the next couple of months this could be rolled out as an actual treatment rather than a trial so it's wow. yeah i mean it, it I say it's it's not going to be as good as developing a drug or it's not going to be as good as developing a vaccine, but it it's going to be out ready to roll out probably in a few weeks if the trials all go well. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a it's a real life plaster just to try and fix us up to buy time. Yes, yeah, so I, I think they're already using it for compassionate use at, at this point as well. So patients who are critically in, in intensive care, I think they're already receiving convalescent plasma in a compassionate use case yeah what are you gonna do kill them yeah exactly that's really cool stuff um so just going coming back to the it's not as good as a vaccine we know that and it won't be as good as a small molecule therapeutic but if it tips the spit the scales of survival that's great i mean that's something right oh god oh yeah it's definitely something yeah it's definitely something what i was just going to ask you is you're familiar with the process of drug development as, as well as i am and, and what goes into that? What are you making of these, I don't want to say ridiculous timelines, but these timelines that just sound ridiculous? Oh, that's a good, good question, yeah. I do think it's very ambitious. So I've heard... This podcast is ambitious. Ambitious and rubbish. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, like the ones I've been hearing is, oh, potentially a vaccine, like end of this year, start of next year. And I'm thinking, how? Like... I mean, it probably is possible to, to produce a vaccine in a lab in small quantities in that time. But I, I don't see how you can do all of the trials and all the testing in that time, even if you run them in parallel. Even So if you're running all the, you know, sort of an, animal trials, human trials, all the different stages, even if you're running that all in parallel, that seems a bit, it still seems ambitious. I don't know if you can do that with the red tape. I don't think you can run them in parallel with the red tape. The 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 amount of policy is insane. And a friend of mine who um, I won't give his legal name away in case people are looking for him, but he works in Oxford and he is on the front lines of this. He's working in a big group there. You know the Oxford vaccine that you've read about in the paper. Yeah, he's basically working on that. And he, I asked him this, and the response I got was along the lines of, "Wow, the." Poly, policy for vaccines isn't quite the same as policy for small molecules but it's still humongous and it's still such a it, it, to me insurmountable in the time scale that they've been or they've they've given yeah i mean for, for context i think um and i could be wrong about this i mean you guys tell me i think the fastest we've ever developed a vaccine as a human race has been five years i think so i don't know for certain but that probably sounds about right but i mean there is a difference between having a vaccine 
we know it's safe, we know it's effective, it works, here it is, we've got it. There's a difference between having, say, you know, one one lot of that in a test tube and having millions of yeah. them mass produced and distributed and ready to go. Like that's quite a different ballpark. So it, it's a, I mean, you could possibly produ- have a va- have a vaccine produced that exists at the early part of next year, but having it so it's so it can be packaged, so it's stable, easy to administer, and then distributed out. That's that's not going to happen. That's an important point you raised there. Just so for the, our fine folk who don't don't quite fully understand what, what that means, can you just explain by what you mean by stable and compare that to a small molecule therapeutic like some ibuprofen that you bought last year that's still on the shelf? Yeah, so I'll say something like your over-the-shelf ibuprofen. It's it's in like a little tablet. Usually it's like film-coated. It's very stable. It, it can handle hot, cold, various humidities. You can just throw it in the cupboard and forget about it and if you take it in a year or two it will still work whereas a lot of vaccines they have to be temperature controlled so some of them you have to keep them between say two and six degrees celsius and the sh- even even then the shelf life might only be say 30 days but even going before that there's the fact that you have to actually mass produce it on a large scale so like say even producing anything in in the lab so small molecules or of vaccines like it's it's very easy to make it say just a small amount that you can have in the lab just you know a few grams of the stuff but scaling it up so you can churn out large volumes of it again and again and again so you can give that to lots of people that's a very that's a whole process in it in itself absolutely i would say as a chemist that it's easier to do it on a vac on a you know a protein or a, a, a biological molecule than it is to a small molecule but I'm sure if you biologist, you you disagree and say it's the reverse. There's no easy way to to go about it, and it requires serious R and D. Yeah, I'd say both processes are very labor intensive, very tricky. I got friends who work in both, and neither of them are happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. So, so just as we we kind of move forward, thank you for that as well. It's some really insightful stuff. I think that was amazing. Um, I just want to ask: Do you think? Because what you said that you were very quiet the first couple of weeks, people weren't going to hospital, they weren't going to any, they weren't going to for um, hospital, they were avoiding them, and, and rightly so. Do you think that we're going to see a backlog of deaths to come with non-diagnosed illnesses, diseases, and cancers that we could have got earlier and treated? Oh, absolutely, definitely. Like there's there's no two ways of going about it with. So with GP, GP practices being closed or, say, only doing virtual appointments, like just from our perspective in the lab, like it's, it's fairly common. We'll get like routine blood tests in from a GP and then we'll pick some up on, on the analyzer and it's like, oh, that's, that doesn't look quite right. We'll make a blood film, have a look, and it's like, oh, oh my God, this patient's really ill. But whereas like outwardly, they don't seem to be presenting with many symptoms like like say the GP is just sending us a blood sample because they're not too sure what's going on. They want to get more information. And then all of a sudden it, it, they go from being, Oh, I don't feel quite right. I'll go see the GP to w- w- within a, a couple of days, they'll be seeing say a, a consultant hematologist telling them they've got cancer. And it's that sort of thing where if, if you catch it early on, it can be very treatable, but you see it sometimes where patients who, especially older people where they've, they've been ill for a while. So they've just, They've, you know, they they have they haven't gone to see anyone. They've they've decided, oh, you know, I'm just getting old. It's normal to be ill or whatever. So they leave it and leave it and leave it. And then by the time they turn up, they're they're in a pretty bad state. And by then, obviously, there's like that the outcomes are worse. 
So like the same things happening is going to happen with COVID-19, except instead of people like just not wanting to go to the doctor, it's they're going to be scared of catching the virus, so they're not going to go, or their appointments have been cancelled, or maybe they've just had, say, a virtual appointment where they've not had the opportunity to take any blood. And if they don't seem that ill from the outside, and that it's probably, they probably think, oh, it's probably not that necessary to get them in to take some blood from them. So there'll be a lot of stuff which at the minute is going under yeah, the radar. Yeah. Like it's, it's not being det- not being detected, which obviously it'll just go on and on and on, and then patients will present with like much more advanced cases than they would have done. Absolutely. Oh no. And then very quickly, um, so you've alluded that people will be, and and this is an issue now as well. I don't want to fear monger anymore, but in my opinion, I think that COVID nineteen now. An awesome mutation of it will always be present, I think, in hospitals and a bit like MRSA, just a little bit more difficult to get rid of. And I think we can get rid of it in our normal day-to-day lives, but in hospitals, is it going to be around forever? I'd say that's possibly, possibly. I don't want to say likely, but it's definitely a a scenario that we should probably keep an eye on. I mean, I, I've read a few things where I'll say quite a few people reckon that that the COVID-19 could end up following some sort of seasonal pattern in the future, where similar to what the flu does, where, you know, it flares up in the winter, then in the summer, it's, it's a, you know, you don't hear much about it. Not many people ca- catch it. But then next winter, cases start to rise again. So it could follow that sort, that sort of pattern. In terms of it becoming a hospital-acquired infection, say at, at the minute, it's probably one of the biggest hospital-acquired infections. Because like, a lot of the patients we see, they've they've probably... Like patients who are in the hospital already when when the crisis started, like they've probably caught it while in hospital. So from that from that point of view, I'd say it's quite likely it could end up becoming a fairly common hospital acquired infection. But at this point, we just can't say. Like, like it could it could it could turn out that way. It might not. It's it's you really can't say. Right. So you talk about the increased awareness from staff and, and from the general public. And obviously, you know, last time we saw anything like this 100 years ago or just over now, that we didn't have that kind of same connectivity that we've got. What we've seen is also a massive rise in bullshit articles and bullshit news. Um, have you seen any of these reports? Have you read any of them? Do you, do you catch them as you're scrolling online? And, and where do you think they have stemmed from? And when did we, t- as a society... What happened? That's a hard, hard one to put your finger on it. I'd say it's good that we've got a lot of information out there, so like anyone can access a wealth of information about this. Which, say, a hundred years ago with with the nineteen eighteen flu pandemic, like the average people on the street, they didn't really know what was going on. Didn't like they didn't know best practice, like of how to stop the spread or like what to do, how to how to get treatment. Whereas now there's just, you can just go on Google, there's a whole wealth of information about this. But at the same time, there are a handful of, say... Assholes. <laughs> Call them what they are. Yeah we'll, yeah, we'll go for that then. Like, assholes out there who are trying to... I think that there are people who are trying to deliberately mislead people, either because they think it's funny or because they've got some sort of financial gain to get from it or... But again, I think that equally there are people out there who are sort of like less educated on the topic. So people who who aren't experts 
aren't experts in the field are then sort of purporting to be oh I know, I know everything about this I know exactly what's going on this is what's going on when actually really they sort of half understand the topic and have jumped to conclusions that like the evidence doesn't support so then and they're but they're being given the same platform as people who are genuine experts and I think a lot of the time it can be hard to sort of distinguish like when you've got them on an equal footing it's you know some professor with all his PhDs and you know all his experience and then just some bloke who watched a YouTube video when they've more or less got the same the same voice and the same platform someone who is a genuine expert they might not present themselves so confidently or that they, they might not have like the natural gift of like oration whereas somebody who's doesn't really know what they're on about they might just be a really good speaker well we know what good speakers are capable of if we look back in history exactly yeah one more question sorry um sorry my dogs my dogs were barking so um um, I asked Lewis this question last time, and I'm kind of curious to see what you, you could say about this, Lyndon. Um, you know, the last time the world saw this or something to this scale was over 100 years ago with the 1918 uh, Spanish flu pandemic. And like you said, you know, before now we have so much information available that 100 years ago was not available. What other resources and tools do you think, at least from your line of work, do we have now compared to 100 years ago that could make the outcome of a COVID-19 pandemic much less devastating? A major factor in the fact that, that this has been far less deadly than it was 100 years ago, it's the way information can be exchanged. So not just between professionals, but between normal people. So in academic circles, you can get genuine experts in the field can talk to each other instantaneously in real time. Whereas 100 years ago, you'd have to probably send a telegram. And that's a sort of awkward, clunky way of communicating. And it would probably take a lot longer to get the same amount of information across. Journal articles now, you just email them to each other. It's up there straight away. You can see it. I think you get the same answer I gave when I, when I was asked this last week. Whereas a hundred years ago, if you want if you want somebody to read your your latest journal, like journal article you've just wrote, then you're gonna to have to send it to them in the post, and then they're gonna to have to like send send a reply back. It's gonna take days. Whereas now you can you know get an email in the morning, read it, type your thoughts upon it, email it back, and it can be done by you know by the afternoon. Like things can progress much faster. People who get sick, get ill, they like they know exactly what's going on. They can see the latest government advice. So the government's saying, oh, stay home. If you've got these symptoms, don't go to hospital. Whereas 100 years ago, it would be, oh, if you've got these symptoms, you shouldn't come to the hospital. You'd have to you know, put up an advert in the newspaper and then maybe somebody hadn't read it. Whereas now you're just bombarded with all these sort of, you know, the government advice. Like That's a major difference. I'd say as well as on top of sort of the obvious sort of like the state of the field of medicine and pharmaceuticals is far more advanced now than it was 100 years ago, which makes it much easier to to react like react yeah. to a, to this to this new virus that's rising up we know, we know a lot more about about the viruses and how they work and we know a lot more about drug development and vaccine development so we can do everything a lot more quickly so but i'd say that's a fairly obvious answer that we've got a much deeper understanding of how viruses yeah. work and how the human body works than we did 100 years ago but i think a much more like a, a much more sort of basic level but very yeah. interesting way is just information the way that we can communicate so fast now so we can just sort of compile a lot of collective learning very fast so we can just add to the pile of information incredibly quickly 
Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, anything else you want to add, sweetie? No, you know, I, I think it comes down to what one of my favorite historians, you know, says, which is, you know, when the pressure is on, change takes off, right? And I think we live in a very unique time where we're going to see all of a sudden every single country being pressed with a situation and we're going to see change happen really, really quickly, right? Thank you so much, Lyndon. It was so interesting to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Is there anything you would like to add? Is there anything you've got to promote for yourself? Any books you've got written coming out? Anything <laughs> at all you want to talk about no i've not read any any books yet so yeah i'm all right for now so thanks for having me well thank you so much for the work that you do also no problem no thank you that was amazing cool thanks all right thank you very much oh once again huge thank you to linden for joining us what a great conversation that was a scientist who doesn't just lie for their own profit or gain and oh well the bar is so low after judy isn't it <laughs> <laughs> Linda knew so much better than that. <laughs> oh, God, absolutely. So, should we move on to the quick fire, not so quick fire round today? No, we're going we're to be a quick fire, quick fire, so, so quick It'll... fire round today because I said we don't apologize for length, but golly, it's getting long. Absolutely. So, for the quick fire round today, the first question is and I hadn't even heard about this conspiracy theory, so you might have to explain a little bit. Did Disney cause the coronavirus? You didn't hear this one? No, I love Disney. I can't believe it's being blamed. It's like it's an amusement park. How can it be causing this? So, according to Disney's Bob Iger, no, Disney didn't cause coronavirus. I can't believe you haven't heard this. I really haven't. So this was something that was going around whenever the fuck it was going around. And I don't know how it happened, but people said essentially Disney had started it in Disney Labs because an animation conglomerate Disney has, has labs? chemistry labs. And, and and hang on, I'm trying to make sense of it myself. And that they they are coercing inclusion with Bill Gates on, on a monetary return from the vaccine. That's the conspiracy. And I use the word conspiracy loosely because it's stupid opinions from stupid people, right? That's so crazy. I mean, to even think, you know, what kind of malicious plan would Disney, you know, how would Disney even benefit from this? Or, you know, as an amusement park, they'd have to shut down. <laughs> do, do you know what? So when I was going to break the fourth wall and expose our business some more, when I was researching our tweet of the week, and I, I did try and look for some Disney-related gaga, someone had said exactly what you did. How would, why, how could Disney do this? Why would Disney do such a thing? This is not Disney. Disney is flowers and, and, and softness and child friendly. And they're the company you look at when, how to handle a situation. Ask yourself, what does Disney do? Because they always do the right thing by the customer. And the top reply from some fucking idiot with an American flag in the background and the hashtag 2A shit. They killed Bambi's mother. Oh, this is true, though. And it was devastating for all of us who had to watch Bambi's mother die. But, I mean, did Bob Iger actually had to go and had to, like, address this? Yeah. Yeah, you look it up. Oh, he had to come out and have a, state, a blanket statement. We don't know where this came from. <laughs> we don't know what it does. But we're not involved, nor have we, and never will be involved. That's so insane. I bet Bob Iger was like, God, this was not in the job description. Right. <laughs> Things you never imagine yourself doing. Um, Is he the one with the book? Which book? Doesn't matter. <laughs> poor, poor Bob Iger. Absolutely. And, well, owing to time constraints, we'll have just one more, and I have heard about this one. It's also really crazy. 
Um, how did Bill Gates know about this back about two years ago? Um, he did a TED talk on, you know, the world not being ready for the next pandemic. Is this something he's created? You know, I'm having some weird deja vu again. Have we just spoke about this? I think maybe we have. So Bill Gates did not know about this any sooner than anybody else ever knew about this. His TED talk in whatever year it was, 15, 16, coronavirus is a virus that we've known and we've studied for a long time. And this is a new strain of the same virus that we've been aware of. And his talk was basically leading to the 2002-2003 scare that we had with SARS because that's what COVID-19 is. It's a mutated form of SARS. He didn't know about this any sooner. He wasn't you know, giving away the secrets or saying, well, you know, it's nothing. Of course, it's natural. I said when I was an undergraduate that the governments of the world, they are scared of a real influenza pandemic. And the reason why I said that was because I was looking at the 1918 pandemic. I was kind of looking at what I was learning in pharmaceutical science and thinking this virus really does not, it's not druggable or it's 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 very difficult to, to be druggable. And by that, I mean, have a, a therapeutic and the vaccines. Yes, we have the flu vaccine, but it mutates so rapidly. It's quite hard to keep on top of. And I mean, I got it wrong and Bill Gates got it right. There you go. Well, I, and I think, you know, part of the um, challenge with Corona, uh, like I said, coronaviruses have been around for a long time and we've known about them. And Bill Gates and Melinda Gates do tons of work with other diseases that they've seen. So I'm not surprised that, you know, he's involved in all this. Like this is what their foundation does, you know, and it's just unfortunate that this strain of coronavirus is so effective in spreading because it doesn't just kill people left and right you know if your hosts were dropping dead like flies it wouldn't spread but we have asymptomatic carriers we have a large a pretty long incubation period we have you know so many things that make it so spreadable and so virulent so they you know they do so much work and, and i think the last time i checked they have um devoted 250 million dollars to you know this covid crisis and they have been at this for a long time. Yes, correct. It also does provide a massive tax relief. Oh, God. But that's for a different podcast for a different audience. Very different. But poor Bill Gates then, too. <sighs> All right. So you guys know where to send us your questions if you've got any more. We would love to hear from you at news at gmail.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter uh, at BF News on Instagram, we're at Bearing Fake News, Facebook, and YouTube. Please like and subscribe. We live off likes and subscribes. Shall we launch into our final part of the show? I don't think we'll do paper of the week this week. Just again, we're long and we're not sorry, but we're still trying to keep it together. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never said that. <laughs> That's not in my notes. <laughs> it's long and we ain't sorry for shit. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, well, let's get to it, to the part of the show called Tweet of the Week. Play that funky music, white boy. Oh, what a tune that was. This is the final and my personal favorite part of the show and most hated because I have to read this shit. Tweet of the week, we read out the social media posts of people who actually wrote, believe, and oh, they're committed to just spouting crap. So we're going to take the piss, as they say. All right. I've got number one right here. And very relevant, according to what we talked about today. It says, and I quote, 
According to the biomedical researcher and scientist Dr. Judy McFitz, claims Fauci had the solution to stop HIV and AIDS, which he had a leading hand in, but let millions die instead. Now he is pushing for the COVID-19 hashtag vaccine with hashtag Bill Gates. Say no. Say no. Yeah, just a say no. <laughs> say no. This person clearly knows something we don't know. <laughs> Falsy. This immunology, you know, leader of the immunology, the US currently advising President Picture and his friends had a leading hand in preventing HIV and AIDS, but let millions die instead. Say no. Yeah, and I have to point out, you know, the HIV AIDS pandemic was very poorly well, handled, but I don't think Fauci was single-handed <laughs> for it. <laughs> was he? We we can talk about HIV and the AIDS and how that was handled in, in a future episode, I'm sure. That sounds good. Post number two. I think this was a Facebook one. I do vet these. These are real people. This is not a satirical account. None of these are satirical accounts or parodies. PhD, biomedical research scientist, author of and I'm not going to tell you what she wrote because I don't want to give her any publicity, detailing how Dr. Anthony Fauci sabotaged her research to cover up the true causes of cancer. Oh, God, I want to know what the true causes of cancer are. Uh, I want to know how he sabotaged her research two years after she'd even started a PhD. I know, like Fauci had a really... It sounds like Fauci was really busy during his academic years. Wow. <laughs> sabotaging things like right? Not only that, but the timeline makes no sense. Now, I will say this. If you're an American grad student, and I don't know why you're listening or why anyone else is listening other than, hi, mum, is if the, <laughs> you, they are batshit insane. Like, I remember a story of someone having to, all their experiments were failing and failing and failing. And in the end, they, they were confident it wasn't something they were doing. They put a camera up. Someone else would come in and mess with their shit when they weren't there. Oh, that's ridiculous. As my favorite mentor said to me quote you have to be truly batshit insane to thrive or even participate in usa academia oh wow that said lewis i think you uh, no no it didn't stop there they went on to say that said actually lewis you do really well over there (laughs) (laughs) that's a really questionable compliment take take from that what you will All right, well, this tweet, the next tweet is has got to be my hands down, my favorite tweets here so far. And I think it'll be for, for this week. It says, quote, just a friendly reminder, Melinda Gates wears an upside down cross pendant. Wow. <laughs> Not only is that, is that really funny? That was accompanied with a photo of Melinda Gates. Like, like it was cropped at her hemline so if she was wearing something i was never gonna see i mean it's so funny because melinda gates i think she, she did her schooling with like nuns or she had like a religious upbringing she really did and in her book a uh, moment of lift she recognizes this and even if she did wear an upside down cross pendant like what's it to you girl <laughs> no we didn't uh, we, we, there was no conversation between us prior to recording about plug in someone else's book but as it's melinda gates i think i'll allow it she's cool oh of course she's amazing i'm just kidding she's great number four quote yes obviously fake i'm sure trump knew all about the hashtag pandemic it's confusing though because at first he said it was a hoax but then he started to lie and say it was real i guess even liars tell the truth sometimes oh my god that was so confusing at first, he said it was a hoax, and then he started to lie and say it's real. Yeah, like when he said it was a hoax, it was the truth, and then he said 
said it was real. And, and this guy's like, why is he lying? Even liars tell the truth sometimes. But that last bit doesn't even make sense with the first bit. I was going to say, I was going to say, so is he saying he's telling the truth or not? I don't even get this. I don't think this person knows what they're talking about. <laughs> no, because their entire account is dedicated to crap like this. A few of these might be from either read stuff they retweeted or re reblogged or whatever. All right, so number five. When are we all going to just tell this government to do one? No one can have sex with someone outside of their household. What the hell has that got to do with this corona bollocks? It's an exercise in control. There is no virus. It's a con. Wake up, idiot, or F off. They did actually censor themselves. Yes, and, and I'm not going to be swearing. <laughs> <laughs> Could you just repeat the first line? When are we all going to just tell this government to do one? So you don't do one, it's to do one. Oh, oh, oh okay, I got this. The rest of the tweet still doesn't make any sense, though. Like, when no one can have sex with someone outside of their household, like, this is what the person's concerned about? Incest. It's the solution. Like, you can't have sex <laughs> within or outside of the household. Like, I've got to stick to my... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm concerned. This is, like, the one thing that the person's, like, concerned about. This is where they draw the line. So, I don't know. <laughs> Weird priorities. There is no virus. It's a con. Wake yeah. up, you idiots, or F off. Number six. This was a... Number six was a reply to a government article about how to qualify or get access to testing, antibody testing. You forgot something important. Loss of credibility for lying to the public about a flu-like virus for imposing a fascist state. Oh, wow. Fascist state. You want to talk about fascist states? You go speak to Ava Kaur about what a fascist state looks like. Fuck. You know who Ava Kaur is, don't you? Um, remind me again? Ava Kaur is one of the twins who was experimented on in Auschwitz, and she, I think she lost her sister during that, or well, let me say it properly, her sister was murdered by a fascist state. Oh no, I mean, massages are essential, and if you deprive me of them, clearly I live in a fascist state compared to that. If I'm being sarcastic, of course. <laughs> I was going to say, unless you are a fascist state, you're not a fascist state. It's, it's disgraceful to compare anything to such that isn't. Absolutely. This next one is one of another one of my favorites, I think. It's quite interesting. All right, number seven. How many favorites have you got this week? Uh, there's several that are pretty good this week, to be honest. Number seven, quote, You are very believing of the official narrative. The actual odds of Prince Charles and Boris having, having were 25 million to one. In other news, a unicorn is in my garden. Hashtag propaganda. So, I'm, I'm yeah. guessing they're referring to having coronavirus, right? And I love this because while I guess, <laughs> you know, statistically, you could kind of argue something along the lines like they completely... Well, you know, it's, you could it's I, mean, I mean, you know, they use numbers and everything, but you do realize Boris and Char Prince Charles meet a lot of the same people. Like, it would make sense that they both get it, right? <laughs> and they both meet a lot of different people from a lot of different places. Yeah, of course. So I kind of liked how, um, you know, they kind of started out with like a, a very false number and then it ended, you know, it has the word unicorn in it, so... You know, top tweet. You just like it because it's got the word unicorn in it, don't lie. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I love unicorns, and, you know, I can't believe coronavirus and unicorns were pretty much uh, implied in the same tweet. I think you might have to go over this, because this is, the number eight is fun. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. In the magic land of Corona, the Covidian slaves did reside. Their phantomagorical owner stripped them of reason and pride. Their lives became full of intrusion, accepted by them for a lie, infected by insane delusion that comatose slaves long denied. Wow. I cannot believe someone actually took the time and effort to write this out. Well, they wrote a poem out, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Fucking took all that time to write a poem. I'll give you a fucking poem. They should have wrote this. I'm a fucking moron, of which I have no excuse. When they put me together, a few nuts must have come loose. Now I tweet shit to pass away my time. Dropping the word phantasmagorical into my little rhyme. I scream, I shriek, I yell, I cry. <laughs> and Gucci eagerly awaits the day that I fucking die. <laughs> oh my gosh. I guess people can come up with rhymes on the spot then. It's just me. Yeah. Just you. <laughs> just me. Talk to, talk to us about number nine. <laughs> yeah, number nine is actually a reply to the above post. And it says... I'm actually shaking. Just been to Leyland Garden Centre in Chorley, Lancaster. It's what's the most horrible shopping experience I've ever had. Rude staff shouting out orders. Customers treated like lepers. It was truly unpleasant. When will this madness end? Oh. It's was the most. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. That's what she literally put. It's so sad that this person's, you know, experience. This was a Karen. Yeah, definitely. This was a Karen, absolutely. No, I saw the photo. I, mean, like, I know oh, this is. Oh, you can confirm this was a Karen. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a Karen. I mean, who else just thinks like, you know, oh, my garden center experience was so bad. They treated me like a leper. <laughs> I know. What, they put you on an island and sent fucking Christians over to read to the Bible know, to you? No, they didn't treat you like a leper. They treated you like social distancing, you fucking idiot. You're wrong. Joe, there's an account called, oh God, it's D-H-O-T-Y-A underscore, and it's didn't happen of the year award. That didn't happen. That has to be a lie. Can't be real. But this woman was in the comments backing up the story. <laughs> Literally shaking. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, to be honest, I want to have this woman's life to, you know, have this be like the worst experience oh God, of her yeah, can life. You imagine she must live a life of luxury. Karen, we have other things going on. Um, I don't want to give away who she is, but her name's Wendy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> don't laugh. That's her name, Wendy. No, it's not Karen, but it should be Wendy Karen. Wendy Karen. Um, so as is usual, fashion of tweet of the week. I like to end on a high. So this week's high is by Professor Carol Sakura. And what they tweeted out was the following. And I thought this was really important. It was tweeted out on June the 1st when Britain started to ease lockdown measures. Quote, There are going to be a lot more vulnerable people out and about from today. Keeping your distance isn't important just for you. It's for them too. It's still best to work on the assumption you have the virus and you are desperate not to pass it on. It's good. You know, it highlights the importance of uh, it's not just social distancing, it's physical distancing, but social solidarity. And responsibility. Absolutely. Oh my god, I feel like we've I feel like we've recorded this episode about four times and done many takes. <laughs> 
I feel the same way too. I feel like there's been a change of microphone. I feel like someone's got a new microphone that arrived halfway through this. It's really good. <laughs> it's actually better than mine. No regrets. Thank you, Amazon guys. <laughs> I, f- I feel like we've had computer crashes. <laughs> I feel like there's been computer crashes. Off-topic chat. <laughs> well, we're here to live and learn, right? Oh, God. And, and that kind of circles back to what I said at the very start. Please do support the people that if, if you follow a podcaster and they are on their independent sort of stuff and you really like what they do and you're genuinely behind them, reach out, buy a merch off them or go and support them for a few quid a month because it makes all the difference. I, I honestly, oh, my God, the headaches. <laughs> Before we leave, I, I must say thank you. Again, to everyone who downloaded last week and to all our new listeners, if you're still with us and you haven't, as we said before, fallen into the jaws of infinity, you can reach us, send us your comments, send us your questions, any feedback, good or bad, we love to hear it, buryingfakenews at gmail.com, at bfnewspodcast on Twitter, buryingfakenews on Facebook and Instagram. Absolutely. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we'd love to hear from you, so please let us know through our social media. And we can have a good conversation about information and misinformation out there. Should we go? To, can I go to bed? Say goodnight, Gracie. Good night, Gracie. Oh,